Jesus have just warmed my heart and readied me to really share with you the glory of Jesus and His teaching. So jump in with me to Luke chapter 10. As you do that, I just want to mention two things. Guys, we had a great time together last night. Uh, nearly 90 of us gathered. We ate fish together. We sang together. We got to hear the Lord's Word together. We prayed together. It was just a wonderful time. We're going to get together again this coming Saturday, and we're going to do some work around the church. And we've got a lot of things to do. So men, boys, everybody, let's jump on board. We're going to have breakfast at 7 o'clock a.m. going to have a devotion at 7.30. Get to work at 8. If you can give us a few hours or most of the day, we'll take whatever you can offer us. We know it's kind of a holiday weekend, but we would love for you to help us out. So do me a favor real quick, guys. Grab your bulletin. And uh, tear this off with me. All the guys, just tear it off. And, uh, and if you can help, just write your name on here, maybe a little contact info, and then the amount of time you could give to this work. And if you have any areas of expertise that you would like to use while you're here, we know where we could plug you in. We've got inside work, outside work, painting Light work, we've got heavy work, we've got all kinds of things going on, and a great big list to work together, fellowship together, and enjoy our time on the campus. So, guys, if you'll do that, and just, you can give this to me on your way out, or Richard on your way out, or set it on the table that's back there in the back of the lobby as well. So, help me out with that, that would be great. Also, I want to mention real quick the water trip to Ecuador. We are preparing for that. That's going to be those that middle section in October, uh, taking off around the 14th, coming back around the 22nd. Uh, we want you to be a part of that. We're having another informational meeting this Wednesday night, 7 p.m., here on the church campus in one of the Sunday school classes right over beside where our eating time is in the fellowship hall, uh, the little class right beside it where Billy Johnson's Sunday school class meets. We'll be meeting in there 7 o'clock this coming Wednesday evening. If you have any questions about it, drop me a text or an email. I'll be glad to hear from you. Look with me into our text today. I want to review a few things. Uh, go ahead and bring the first slide up, guys. Um, we want you to know every time we gather, that the greatest need of every human being is to know God. That's everybody's greatest need. Every human being, every man, woman, boy and girl, the greatest need that they have is to know God. Now, to know Him in a very particular way. God wants us to know Him accurately. He doesn't want us to just think we know about Him. So He's made lots of ways for us to understand Him. But He wants us to be accurate when we think about Him and when we talk about Him. He wants us to know Him personally. He is interested in a personal relationship with His creation, having made us in His image. He is also interested in us knowing Him savingly. The reason we need to know God is because we lost fellowship with God because of our sin. And we were separated from Him because of our sin. And our sin actually prevents us from knowing Him. And so, by hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, we are brought into a personal relationship with Him where we know Him savingly, but we enter a whole new level there. We know Him intimately. We're adopted as His sons and daughters. We get to call God Daddy. Plain old, down-home Daddy. That's an awesome 
privilege. We get to know that Christ is the husband and the church is the bride. The two most intimate relationships in the world, parent-child, husband-wife, that's how God wants us to know Him. And He also wants us to know Him eternally. He's going to spend all of eternity letting you get to know what He's like. And because He is an infinite being, you will never run out of things to know. So that's going to be great. But God has given us ways to know Him. He's given us the creation. He shows Himself through the beauty and the glory and the wonder of creation. He's given us a conscience. Our conscience is informed by truth and we know right and wrong and good and evil as a result. He's also given us the Bible. Very perfect, accurate description of Him and of us. He's given us the perfect picture of of Him in Jesus. The Bible says that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so we have this picture of God in Jesus, and then God has given the church that people may know Him. But there's a reason for that, and that's to grow in His likeness. That's the next slide. We need to grow to be like Him. He wants to save us and re-image us so that we're formed in His image, in the likeness of Christ. Exactly what Wendy was teaching the children. But there is a goal in that, so that as we grow in His image and in His likeness, we have the responsibility to do the next thing, which is to show what He is like to other people. That's why Jesus takes seriously how we act. When we say that we're followers of Christ, when we say that we are image bearers of God, we have a responsibility to show what God is like. And that is a responsibility given specifically to the church. So when we run into the lesson that was read today by Andrew, it's a lesson about people who say, I know God yet have not grown in His likeness and are not showing accurately what He is like. And we meet a teacher in Luke chapter 10 who's an expert in theology, in terms of written knowledge of God, in terms of having and possessing written knowledge. He's at the apex. He is at, he's the teacher of seminary professors. He's the guy that everyone looks to with any question of theology, any question about God, any question about the law, any question about what is right and what is wrong. This is the expert. And so when we meet this guy, the expert is wrong. And Jesus' story is to help us understand why he's wrong and what went wrong. And so Jesus tells a story in answer to a question that this man has. So I want to review last week very quickly. I just want to say a few things. So jump in to your outline and let's go to number one. Luke's recounting of the story of the merciful Samaritan provokes us to look into the cause of self-righteousness. In the story, a man stands up and he asks Jesus a question. The question is, how am I going to get to heaven? How do I know I have eternal life? How do I know if I have been counted as the redeemed. And so Jesus turns the question back on the man and he says, well, what do you think? Well, evidently the man had heard Jesus speak before because he repeats something that Jesus previously said. Jesus, in a previous encounter, talking with people, had been asked, what's the greatest command? And he had answered, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. So this guy kind of repeats what Jesus says, And it looks good on the surface. So he repeats back to Jesus. Well, here's the answer. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, do this and you will live. And we talked about last week how he jumped from Deuteronomy 6 to Deuteronomy 30 and made a connection there so that the man would consider some of the things that he knew from the Scripture about God doing a work, a miraculous work in our heart to change us and make us able to love Him, apart from which we can't. And so, the man's stuck. He knows that in his heart, there is a lack of love. And what he would like to do is justify his lack of love by getting Jesus to define something for him. And that is to define who is my neighbor. In other words, what he's saying is, who do I have to love? Come on, tell me. Who do I have to love? If I'm going to get to heaven, who do I have to love? How far do I have to go in being loving that will be enough to qualify me that the man is hedging his bet. The man we know is wrong in his heart. That's why it is said there, seeking to justify himself. Look in verse 29 of Luke 10. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus. Now, where does this self-justification come from? Last week we covered this, so let's touch on it very quickly. The cause of self-righteousness is given to us in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, you have this beautiful setting. A perfect world, a perfect creation, no sin, no death, no unrighteousness. And you get at the end of chapter 2, a picture. It says, and the man and the woman were naked and they were unashamed. They had no need for any kind of covering. They had no need for any kind of justification. They had no need for any kind of hiding. Everything was fine. Nothing to hide. And then, they sin. And immediately after the sin, there's this consciousness that comes over them. A self-consciousness. A sinful self-consciousness. And suddenly, after being naked and unashamed, they feel the need to cover themselves. They flee. They take fig leaves. They sew them up. They make little outfits. And they think that's going to somehow be sufficient. They think this is a good idea. This will help hide what's wrong with us. This will help us understand that we won't feel so self-conscious about this, this fact that we feel wrong. We feel guilty. We feel shame. After having been unashamed. And so suddenly you've got a guy and a gal hiding from each other. Hiding from God. And it's because suddenly they're aware that something's wrong. Self-righteousness comes from the awareness of sin. Go ahead. Letter A, self-righteousness has its origin in the arrival of sin into the human heart. And letter B, self-righteousness is a sinful and foolish coping mechanism originating in our self-consciousness of sin. So here's what happens. All of a sudden they're conscious that something's wrong with them. They need to cover. They need to hide. So that's the actions they take. Let's break that down from last week. Number one, the first action they take is they cover. They sew up these little fig leaves thinking this will relieve their consciences. But it's not enough. 
So then they hide. They, they try to avoid contact with God. Because they know if God sees them, that these little garments evidently aren't sufficient. Because after having put them on, they still feel the way that they felt immediately after when they sinned. They still feel self-conscious. They still feel unrighteous. They still feel shameful and guilty. And so they're taking another step. And the next step is, let's hide. Because covering's not enough. Let's avoid contact with God. So they do that. And they run into the woods and they hide. God comes walking along and says, where are you? And Adam says, we were scared and we hid from you because we were naked. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I told you not to eat? And then they take the third step, which is, To throw people under the bus. Adam immediately throws Eve under the bus. It's like, you gave her to me and she messed this whole thing up. This is what self-righteousness does. It blames other people for what we are culpable or responsible or guilty of. That's why... The teacher of the law felt comfortable hating certain people because he could blame them for the hatred in his heart. Please follow the logic here. What Jesus is doing is He is bringing out of this man. Man wanted to put Jesus on the spot. Here's what was happening. The man wanted to mark Jesus as a liberal. He wanted to mark him as a sympathizer with bad people. Remember, they're already saying, friend of sinners, gluttons, prostitutes, tax collectors. Now, Samaritans. Because everybody knew who the subject was at hand. So, they blame and they deflect. That's what's happening in self-righteousness. This man wants to be able to blame non-neighborly folks for the hatred he has of his neighbor. Now listen, before you too quickly jump on him, this is very normal human behavior. We do it every day. And so Jesus is setting up To reveal the truth here. So let's move into today's lesson. Spend a moment getting up to speed here. Question number two. Or point number two is a question. Why would the lawyer seek to justify himself in defining who was his neighbor? Well, we've got to do a little history lesson here to go back and understand what's going on. The Jews and the Samaritans had a long-standing issue. When we think of racial struggles in the United States, all of our racial struggles are young, believe it or not. We've only been a nation for a little over 200 years. Any racial strife or struggle that we have, which right now you can feel it, it's palpable, it's true, it's real, it's there, but it's young. It doesn't have near the history of this struggle. 
the struggle between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, the struggle between the Jews and the Samaritans began all the way back. Give me number one, Russell. They had a separation. After David was king, his son Solomon became king. Solomon died. His son Rehoboam took over, and Rehoboam was a knucklehead. And in being a knucklehead, he led to a separation between the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel. Listen carefully. When we get to Jesus' time, we're talking about strife that is 800 years old. And it has permeated every aspect of their culture. You see, as soon as there's a separation, the separation leads to alienation, civil war, all kinds of things break out. Trouble brews for years, and what happens is is Jeroboam, who takes over the northern kingdom of Israel, says, look, the only way we're going to make this separation work is if we establish our own religious shrines. So Jeroboam sets up three centers of religious activity. He sets up one way up north in Dan, way down south, right on the border with the southern kingdom in Bethel. And then he sets up the seat, the county seat, the cultural seat of the northern kingdom in Samaria. Actually, he is right there in a little place called Shechem. And it starts. The northerners and the southerners break over this. Civil war breaks out on several occasions. It intensifies. Second, because religion becomes an issue. Don't you remember when Jesus went into Samaria in John 4 and they begin the conversation and the the woman immediately goes for the juggler. She says, you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem, but we say that it's in a different place. She immediately just brings right to the surface the division that's over 800 years old. This is something that has been building and building. This is a serious breakdown. And so the religious centers have been set up separately. Later on in the time of Samaritan growth, there will be an actual temple built in Samaria that will be called the house of what? The true house of God. And they will say, it's not Jerusalem. And then they're going to alter, they're going to get their own edition of the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, and they're going to edit them. They're actually going to edit the Ten Commandments to command worship in the northern part in Samaria. They're going to edit and say that God actually said He would put His house, not in Jerusalem, but in Samaria. And they've got their own version of the Bible. It's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. You can go online and read it today. It's still out there. Did you know that Samaritanism is still a religion that still has a culture that still lives in the same area? Today. It's a long time it's been around. And so they're split over religion. There's all kinds of things that go with that split. They're split over politics. Number three. Every time that there is a a, a conflict, it seems like the Samaritans get into the side against the Jews. 
You'll see it develop many times through the history of Israel. You'll see it really frankly best when Ezra and Nehemiah come in and the people living in Samaria, Samaria give such a hard time to the Jewish people that the people in Samaria actually write to the king and shut down the rebuilding of the structures in Jerusalem. And they side with an evil king against the people of Israel and stop the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. They make fun of them. So there's this political separation that every time something comes up, the Samaritans team with the people against the Jews and work against the Jews. So you got one wing of politics and another wing of politics always at each other and the tensions just keep increasing. These people are angry with each other. They won't even go through each other's towns. One time when Jesus is passing through, they won't receive Him because He's headed toward Jerusalem. They said, we don't take anybody heading toward Jerusalem. And so all of this stuff's building. Then a whole culture develops. Letter D. A whole culture develops. The culture develops separately from Israel. What's right and what's wrong, what's good, what's evil, what's cool, what's hip, what's not. All of those things develop differently. So the Samaritans even look a little different in their appearance. They begin taking on some of their own linguistic characteristics. So they sound differently because of the separation. And the whole culture develops that is different than the Jerusalem culture. And so they're culturally different. And you've got this developing for centuries. It's coming to a head. They hate each other. The woman looks at Jesus when He meets her at the well in John 4 and says, why are you talking to me? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It was a stated rule. You don't do anything. You, you, you don't even acknowledge their existence. You pass them by, you don't make eye contact, you don't affirm their existence, you treat them like non-humans. And that's what they did. And so the woman says, you're acknowledging me? And you want to drink from me? Y'all don't even acknowledge us. And so the tensions of culture are there, but it's more than that. Ethnicity is involved. When you carefully read history in the Bible... And history out of the Bible, you'll see that the kings wanted to kind of settle all the stuff down in Israel. So they said, let's put a bunch of different people groups in there. So a couple of the kings actually imported foreign people, people not from around there, into it. Now we see a great example of this. Come with me to Nehemiah 13.28. Uh, way over in the, in the Old Testament. It's before Job. It's before Psalms. It's after... Kings and Chronicles. Then there's Ezra and Nehemiah. Come with me to Nehemiah. And I want you to listen to a description there. Nehemiah 13, 28. I think that's what I want to get to. I have to look at it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, before you go to 13, 28, go to 219. There's two of them. That's why my brain was kind of pausing there, because I knew there was another one. 2.19. When the trouble started during the rebuilding of Israel, the people from Samaria came against them. And notice who's involved in this. This is 2.19. 
But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? This is when they were rebuilding. Do you notice there are three different nations mentioned? Three different people groups? Why are they mentioned? Because they're living together in Samaria. And guess who's right in the middle with them? Jewish people who came back and intermarried with those people. They intermarried with these folks. How much intermarrying was going on? Well, it had gone all the way into the leadership of Israel. Come over now to the last chapter in Nehemiah and look at it. Verse 28, even one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest. Now this is, we're talking about top dog in, in Jerusalem. What had happened? He had married the daughter of Sanballat the Horonite. So how far had it gotten into? Well, there was an intermarrying so much that even the leadership of Israel had intermarried with these people which was against God's Word. The only rules in intermarrying anywhere in the Bible have to do with the Jewish people not intermarrying us, the Gentiles, those outside of Israel. That was to keep the line pure coming into the Messiah. And here they're doing that and there's a problem with it. And so they're intermarrying. So ethnicity is now a problem because what you get is what the Israelites are going to call half-breeds. Half-breeds. In South America, what do they call half-breeds? There's a word for them. Mestizos. That's how folks identify. It's from the, it's from the word mixed. They actually identify. What race are you? We're mestizos. We're mixed. Well, this is what's happening here. They're mixed. So now it's an ethnic problem. It's not just a problem of separation and religion and politics and culture. It's now getting into ethnicity. And now there's this rising ethnic tension with each other. And then, I mentioned before, letter F, the Bible. In order to justify all that they've been doing since the separation of the kingdoms, they've been in the process of editing the Bible. And they edited it all the way down to where the time in Jesus' day, it doesn't say what it says. It says something else. Then there's one other thing that came with all of this in order to justify all of this. They said, we are the origin of truth, you're not. You're not the true Jewish people, we're the true Jewish people, we're the ten tribes. Y'all are the two tribes, and y'all are nobody. We're the ten tribes, we're somebody. And we're actually the owners of the history of Israel. God actually commanded His temple to be built in our town. God actually commanded all of these things. We've got an edited Bible to show you and prove it. And so we're actually... And that's why Jesus says this when He's talking to the Samaritan woman. He takes it up. He says, salvation is of the... Jews. He, he addresses it. Doesn't let that be the sticking point. So what's happening? This Bible teacher, this expert, wants to say, Jesus, surely you're not telling me 
to love these people that I have every reason to hate. It's very obvious, Jesus, that you're not going there. Everybody knew what the question was about. Nobody, this would be like asking this question in the middle of the 60s civil rights movement. Everyone would know what the question was about. No one would have to do any interpretation for the hearers. And so the guy springs the question on Jesus. How big of an issue is this in John 8? What did they call Jesus? Anybody know? In John 8, what did the Pharisees call Jesus? They called Him a Samaritan. Why? They knew He was a sympathizer. This is serious. So what's happening here? This guy is certain that one of two things is going to happen. Jesus is either going to affirm Him... And justify him, which is what he wants. Or Jesus is going to out himself as a sympathizer of traitors. Because there is no way on God's green earth in this lawyer's mind that God would ever call these people neighbors. There's just no way. They're murderous. Civil war insiders, sympathizers with every enemy of Israel, mixed breed, Heinz 57 mutts. No. And Jesus does something here that is so beautiful. Not only does Jesus not justify the man, Not only does Jesus out Himself as a sympathizer with all sinners, but Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Why would Jesus make the Samaritan the hero of His story? He makes him the hero. He doesn't make the Samaritan the guy laying on the road. That one would have been easy to swallow. You're walking down the road, you see this pitiful Samaritan, and you say, oh man, there's a pitiful Samaritan. Man, that's that's a those punks. That's worthless. Man, I tell you what, I'm going to drag his old naked body up here and at least get him out of the way of the road. And everybody would say, whoa, dude, you did it, didn't you? You did it. No, he doesn't do that. Jesus makes the Samaritan... Go back a slide. He makes this guy a hero. Now make no mistake here, after this, they decide they're going to kill Jesus because of this. Okay? This is not a small thing He's about to do. He's going to inflame 800 year old racial tensions by calling His disciples to something different than self-justification. He's calling them to a miracle. You see, when Jesus and the man had had their interchange... Jesus' reference in how He ended the interchange in the early part when He said, do this and you will live, had called the man to...
to Deuteronomy 30 where it says that the Lord Himself would circumcise the hearts of the Israelites and their descendants to make them capable of fulfilling His great command to love Him. In other words, Jesus calls His disciples not to natural love, which any lost person, any person far from God is capable of. Jesus calls them to supernatural love. You see, just a few chapters before in Luke chapter 6, Jesus had said, love your enemies. He had already set this out. And they knew what He would say and set Him up. And either this man's going to get justified or Jesus is going to get outed as a political sympathizer and be thought to be some kind of crazy guy. Jesus just tells the story. He lays out the truth that the Samaritan had experienced what the lawyer had not. The Samaritan had had God change his heart so that he could love his enemy. And the Samaritan becomes the hero of the story. He becomes the example. You see, it wasn't the lawyer, the specialist in theology that should have been teaching the class at the local seminary. It should have been the Samaritan. It wasn't the the teacher of the law that should have been preaching Sunday sermon, Saturday for them. It was the Samaritan. Because the difference was, One person had assimilated a lot of information about God in his head. And the other person had had the miracle of the new birth and demonstrated it by how he treated people. So why would Jesus make a Samaritan the hero of his story? I'm going to share with you something that I hope you can take home. But here it is. Because ultimately in loving one's neighbor, none of that matters. No historical event, whether personal, political, ethnic, religious, national, can justify a loveless heart. I don't know what you're doing, but this is killing me. Because I'm guilty. I'm guilty. All of us know a loveless heart. And Jesus wants to walk right up and with the masterful Razor of His saving hand. He wants to circumcise every heart here. Because circumcision is the return to being sensitive to others. It is the removal of the hardness, self-justifying, lying religion that we're all capable of. And He wants to come to every one of us. And He wants to say to us, nothing justifies lovelessness.
Listen carefully. You and I cannot spend weeks and weeks and months and years pouring into our hearts Fox News and MSNBC and talk radio where everything everybody does is politically motivated, pitting one side against another, forcing you to see yourself as one side or the other in a battle that is never going to be won. My brothers and sisters, politics wins no souls. Ever. And I'm afraid that the North American evangelical church has more talking points from conservative news sources than from Jesus Christ. And I fear that the liberal North American church has more talking points from MSNBC than from Jesus Christ. And we've got to get to the place where the great feeder of our souls is not the pundits, but the prophets. And we've got to turn away from having our souls fed a constant stream of fear. You see, the Jews grew up being taught, you better fear those stinking Samaritans. They're traitors. They'll cut your throat. Let me tell you something. They'll inhabit your land. They'll move into your cities. They'll bring their false religion. And their ultimate goal is to stomp out the Jews. How do they know that? Because they had participated in it before. And the Samaritans were taught the same thing. Those stinking Jews... They hate you, and if they get a chance to annihilate you, listen, if Rome's not watching out for us, I'll guarantee you Israel's going to take us over. And they were fed this stream of fear, putting everybody on edge, looking at each other, glaring out, saying, look at him, look at how he's dressed, he's dressed like a Samaritan. I bet that's what they are, sympathizers. He talks like a Samaritan. Jesus, that's what you are, you're a Samaritan, and you have a demon. This is the work of the enemy to put everybody on political, cultural edge. My brothers and sisters, the gospel is not that. The gospel is this. God so loved the world. That He gave. His one and only begotten Son. But whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The job of the church is to proclaim the Gospel. And so we need to get busy loving our neighbors. And no one can leave this room today justifying lovelessness. No one. You may choose to, but you may not. Because you will not get past it with God. We are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And do you know what Jesus does at the end? And we're going to see how the parable fleshes out next week. Do you know what He does at the end? 
He says to the Jew, go be like the Samaritan. Are you kidding me? you got to be kidding me. 800 years! And you're telling me to be like Him? Jesus said, yeah. Because He believes. His heart's been circumcised. He loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loves his neighbor as his self. And he turns and he says, go and do likewise. And so, that's how we close today. Go and do likewise. Would you bow with me? For some of you, this gospel message is new. And you're here today digesting, how can a person love an enemy? How can a person forgive an enemy? How can a person exist in the company of an enemy? It's by this. When you were God's enemy, He sent His own Son to come and rescue you. You were God's enemy because of your sin and unrighteousness, and your unwillingness to obey Him as God. You were His enemy in that your actions and deeds suppress the truth of how good He really is. You lied about how glorious God is by how you acted. So that made you His enemy, but God wanted to reconcile you to Himself, so He sent Jesus. And Jesus lived the way you should have lived, in perfect harmony with God, doing all that God desired and designed. And then, as a willing participant, died for your sins. Because His death was sufficient, the check for the payment of your sins cleared the bank and God raised Him from the dead. And Jesus ascended and now He sits at the right hand of God the Father reigning the universe. And you need Jesus. We need Jesus. I want to invite you to come to Jesus. Professor of faith, professor of theology, professor of Sunday school teaching, professor of knowing God, if you are not circumcised of heart to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love every neighbor, all neighbors, as yourself. You may be just like the lawyer in this study. You may be lost. Though you've been years in church, years in service, years in missions, years in ministry, it's possible that you've done all of it as an act of self-justification to prove that you're good enough to be accepted by God. But there is only one way you can be accepted. Through the goodness of Jesus. We all need our hearts circumcised. We all need to know how to have the power to love even our enemies and to do good to those who spitefully use us. We all need to know how do I feed my enemy if he's hungry and give him drink if he's thirsty. We need to know. Jesus alone can give that to us. Let's leave our politics in our history. Not as formative, not saying that they're never important, but they never can justify lovelessness. 
Do you love your neighbor? Will you love your neighbor? As God stirs your heart, would you stand? Would you come?